Broadcasting live from Tiddles, here's your chance to chew my mailman pants. This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Garrett Strother. And I'm your other host, Seamus Connolly. And that was a beautiful rendition of what is genuinely one of the most delightful movies I've seen in a long time in the theater. Today we are talking about Wonka, the prequel that nobody asked for, but everyone's kind of enjoying. I agree, and we'll get into it soon in our main segment, but we do have a couple of news items to get into up first, starting with a real gut punch of a news item, the fact that Andre Brower has passed away from lung cancer It's really difficult to see an actor who was so vital for so much of his career struck down at such a young age. And, I mean, obviously, he's most known for his work on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I would think. But as somebody who has not watched very much of, but has very much enjoyed what I have seen of his work on Homicide Life on the Street, a show that is criminally not streaming anywhere and is the precursor to The Wire transcendent work that he does yeah i i definitely know him best from brooklyn 99 he's literally the shining star in a show that is stacked with hilarious comedians and actors and and since his passing i i too have been seeing smaller smaller bits of homicide he is so he's awesome i i would like to maybe actually dig into that show a little more and i mean i've never seen the wire so i should i should maybe do the old one-two punch I've got the first season of Homicide on DVD, by which I mean I've ripped the DVD and it's on a hard oh, drive. sure, sure. And, I mean, he's not on the wire, but you should definitely watch it. I also remember him fondly, which is a really stupid thing to remember him fondly from, both the Poseidon TV movie with Richard Dreyfus, which is super <laughs> not good. Oh. He's the captain of the Poseidon in that movie. And then also, Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. Bad movie. No kidding. He is in it. Wow, weird, weird. You know I have no knowledge at all of those Fantastic Four movies, but that is interesting to know that he popped his head into the early Marvel stuff as it was back then. I mean, but as a multi-time Emmy winner, it's a real loss to see him go. I remember back when Brooklyn Nine-Nine first started, he was on... This is before I even watched the show. I'm going to say he was on Good Morning America. No, he must have been on the Today Show because that's NBC. Mm. And he was talking about how amazed he was by all of the comedians on the show. Because he's like a classically trained Shakespearean actor. He's a dramatic actor. And going to Brooklyn Nine-Nine as a comedy was a real shift for him in tone. And... How much admiration and humility he expressed during that interview has stuck with me for years. Because he seemed so true and down-to-earth and humble while being, I mean, one of the greatest television actors of all time. And hopefully, if there's any silver lining in this, which there isn't, because what a heartbreaking situation. Maybe NBC will put homicide back out on peacock or something so that it can actually be readily available for people to view yeah that would be i would i would appreciate that now that i'm sure more people than ever are interested in watching it uh in in the current streaming landscape here i i hope that they do take the opportunity to put that complete work out there 
But our second and last piece of news, in, in lighter news, that is, we have the sudden free drop of a God of War Ragnarok DLC, God of War Ragnarok Valhalla. That's right, they burned both Norse words, so I don't know what they're going to do for the next game. I mean, I'm surprised as you to see this pop up. You, I think, platinumed Ragnarok, whereas I had a several month head start on you. It did not, so I don't know how soon this DLC is in my future. I've been locked into a few other games recently, including Breath of the Wild, which I'm years away on. Well, you've you've got some time, I think. This was... I I have just started this with my girlfriend Kara. She she pulled the trigger on it cuz it was announced and was dropped within like a few days. So that was a, that was a pretty big a big deal, but it is it was kind of uh in the trailer that they announced it with it seemed a little more like an arcade style roguelike roguelite repetitive kind of combat focused DLC kind of just elongate the the time you can have fun just kind of messing around with different combat things. But not even that far into this DLC, there is there's big things going on here. This, the writers did not skimp on this one, and it it really does feel like. And I mean, I haven't I haven't finished it out yet, but a, a very interesting bridge to whatever they're leading to in in the next title. I also know that some of the creatives behind God of War have alluded to the fact that this maybe isn't the only DLC we're going to get. I will not speculate on what that could be in an effort to avoid spoilers for the game for the people who have not gotten to finish it yet, but I mean, I think there's ample opportunity for a lot of varied DLC, and I'm very curious to get into what this holds, what it means for Kratos' story. Did you see the trailer of this for this DLC? I avoided it just because I'm like, I'm going to play it anyway. Okay, that's... That's fair. I'm not going to say what I was about to say then, but maybe I'm going to play this one. Maybe I'll be next to you on the couch when you when you dive into this one. That's all I'll say, maybe. Maybe someday we'll do all the things we say we're going to do. No, you shut your mouth, Garrett. We'll never do that. <laughs> Don't leave that in the show. <laughs> it's on the record. But yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a fascinating experience, and I'm very excited to get cracking on it. I'm excited to finish up the game itself which i haven't properly done yet even if i finished the story campaign but there are so many games to play seamus so little time garrett i understand i very much do understand but uh we will we will touch back on this new dlc a little bit more in our pop culture reference later indeed we will so do you think with that we should move on to our main segment? Should we use the Wonka mobile to get over there? <laughs> I was I was gonna say, let's let's float into it, Garrett. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about Timothy Chalamet's Paul King's Sally Hawkins's Wonka? <laughs> Question mark? How did I know you were gonna say Timothy Chalamet's name first like he directed this movie i feel like maybe that's been what we've been saying all along but i don't know if he, it really it's like calling it johnny depp's charlie in the chocolate factory which is uh, which is often what i do actually i did that frequently on the show last week actually maybe that's so. why it's on my mind so much it's it's this is the third insanely unique version of this character on screen that i've seen and I I really enjoyed this movie, Garrett. I I have been more skeptical than ever this year 
on trailers, and specifically this Wonka trailer, even all the way it back... It wasn't a good trailer, Seamus. Well, I mean, maybe that's a part of it, but even back when I, like... I don't remember even how many years ago this was, where I sniped this... Like, I joked, like, oh, they're gonna make sexy Willy Wonka prequel with Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> I remember like, you saying that. six months before they announced this movie. And I, since then, I've been like, I am not happy about this. We tried this experiment before with Johnny Depp, and it was, it was a no-go. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I think it is certainly the second best of the three, the Wonka trilogy. And I would definitely see this again. I, I know you have seen it twice already. Is that right? I did see it. It was kind of an impulse decision. I was getting out of an early morning diehard screening last weekend. And I was like, well, I might as go see Wonka starting at five minutes, you know? <laughs> Why not? And we didn't see it in IMAX the first time, and no, that's don't spend the... your IMAX money on it, folks. But Oh, well, that answers my next question. Moving on. Dolby would probably be worth it, I would say. I would uh, almost... Uh, 3D movies aren't that big anymore, but I would see that in a 3D format. I wonder if it is in a 3D format. I can't think of anything specific that would really strike me in 3D, but it seems like the kind of film that would have elements of 3D. But... I can think of a few things that would have fit in really nice there, but that's for spoilers, Garrett. That's fair. If you're going to spring for any kind of premium format, definitely go Dolby. It doesn't have any kind of expanding ratio or anything, but I do think the musical numbers, which this movie does a really good job of hiding in its promotional material would be better in a Dolby setting. I mean, it was nice to see it louder and bigger, of course, and with AMC A-List, how can you resist? <laughs> this is episode is sponsored by AMC A-List, Stubbs A-List. They probably should, because most of the movies we cover for this show, we, we see with the sponsorship of AMC A-List. Almost exclusively, if we go to the theater to see something, it is it is through Stubbs. But yeah, I agree with you that this is in second place in the Wonka trilogy, which isn't really a trilogy, but it's something. And I would say it's in third place for me in terms of the Paul King, this tone of Paul King <laughs> movies, which basically means the two Paddington movies. And this, it's no Paddington but it will certainly do. There are elements that I dislike about this movie, which there are not traditionally in a Paddington film. So that's kind of my little caveat there. Okay, but okay. It has a similar tone. It is infinitely charming. And I really liked it overall. Do not think that my stationing it under the Paddington films is any kind of non-endorsement. I do like it a lot. I think you should go see it. I've been listening to the soundtrack nonstop, despite the fact that I told you in the theater that I didn't <laughs> think the songs were anything to write home about. I've changed my tune on that a little bit. It's, uh, the music has been floating around my head since we saw it. I, I you know, scrub scrub and all, all of that good stuff. The, the more sinister number, who, the name I can't even remember. What's the sinister chocolate number, Garrett? I know you know what it is. Oh, do you mean Seamus... Wait, sweet tooth, sweet tooth. I was gonna course. say, say you've got a sweet, or so you've got a sweet tooth, which is not. I mean, correct. that's pretty. I mean, hey, that's that's closer than what I was gonna say. But I, I mean, a lot of fun all around. I loved the music so much. I haven't re-listened to the soundtrack like you yet, but I am, I am going to be bumping that on my way to work tomorrow in like my bassy headphones, and I'm, I'm gonna be having a great time. I think we should speak to the elephant in the room first, which is the element of the film that I was the least excited about. 
Timothy Chalamet's performance. Not that Chalamet is not a good actor. I think he's an excellent actor. But I was very skeptical of his ability to pull off this kind of performance, especially when Gene Wilder is one of the most exciting and enigmatic performances of the 70s in the original Willy Wonka. If you want to hear more about that, go back to our episode last week. And I'm delighted to report that I really thought Timothy Chalamet did an excellent job in this film. It's unlike anything I've ever seen him do before. And it's not a Gene Wilder impression. There are elements of that portrayal that do worm their way into Chalamet's performance, but I really do think it's his own thing. And if anything, he's channeling more of Nicolas Cage mm. than he is of Gene Wilder, I think. Yeah, we in the theater we were both kind of in an instant, like truly in unison, he would he would do he would channel one of them and then we would turn to each other and go, There he is. That's that's mm-hmm. who that is. And it, it was I, I genuinely enjoyed his performance as well. I mean, I can't necessarily say like I'm I'm viewing this movie as like it's truly its own thing. I would never ever consider this like a true prequel to what Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is. And I'm I'm very happy that they didn't try so hard to do that i feel like like there are obviously elements that are undeniably references to gene wilder's i mean performance lines just the the movie itself i i thought they were all like very well placed it wasn't overwhelming and and like i said in this trilogy I, again it's not really a trilogy it's like an interesting box set maybe in some way <laughs> But it's it it feels so its own, and he feels so his own as Willy Wonka. I I was very taken with it all. I do think it has a more intentionally retro tone than either of the others. I mean, obviously the Tim Burton one feels pretty Tim Burton-y. Mm. And then the Gene Wilder 70s one is such an eclectic mix of, of tones and aesthetics that it's difficult to narrow it down to just be one thing. It's very unclassifiable. And maybe it's the fact that I've read several interviews with Paul King over the last few days since we've seen this movie, but... He specifically mentions how he was very influenced by the work of Frank Capra and the idea that, okay, extrapolating that, if Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is set in the early 70s, then you would think that this movie would be set in the late 40s and who was a prominent filmmaker in the late 40s that we can derive influence from. And Capra was obviously a big one. And I think the realization that Chalamet was probably also trying to channel some Jimmy Stewart performances was a big eye-opener. I don't want to bring up It's a Wonderful Life on this show because I know the kinds of things that you might be liable to say, Seamus, when you're uninformed. I I spend fake news about about you need to rewatch it's a wonderful life before we ever discuss (laughs) discuss it in earnest on this show but there's a kind of unhinged quality that jimmy stewart brings in several frank capra movies but also movies of that era frank capra of course including it's wonderful life and mr smith goes to washington but also i think movies like bell book and candle and another christmas movie the shop around the corner where he becomes playfully unhinged. I'm not talking about Vertigo or 
rear window where it's truly a psychological like impairment but where his eyes get really big and he gets kind of playfully unhinged yeah it's like I just think... over the line of of weird to like intense weird where it's almost scary but not just quite enough scary and i think that's what chalamet is doing in this movie and i think i i give him a lot of credit for that because he has these moments where his eyes get really big and he does this bizarre huge smile on his face that feels insincere except for the fact that he's selling it so much that you're like oh this guy's just a maniac <laughs> yeah, yeah it's his voice in, throughout almost like 99% of the movie is very like sweet and softer and then like his eyes will go wide and he'll do that smile and he pushes his voice even a little in the more harsher direction just under his like sweet boy surface he's like just a little bit crazier than you would expect yeah he'll crack his voice a little bit and i also am very interested in and this is not a figure that i have a lot of experience with to be honest it's kind of a blind spot in my cinematic history paul king cited fred astaire musicals as a really big influence on this film and i would love to see i would think that that's a more subdued version of what chalamet is doing during say the musical numbers but i i really am interested to go back and try to watch those astaire musicals with that Mm. lens in mind and seeing how much chalamet is directly kind of channeling that energy into it because i find the musical numbers themselves infinitely charming i mean such great imagery and strong performances while even and as much as i said i've been listening to the soundtrack over and over again i don't think the music is the best i've ever heard in a musical but i think it's serviceable enough that it really delivers when the visuals that go along with them are so transcendent totally agree i i almost feel like there there are these moments during the musical numbers of this movie that it starts to feel and i i preface this by saying i kind of agree with you that the paddingtons are like way up there for sure one two but there are times in the musical numbers here where it's like everyone really does love willy wonka and like there's this kind of energy that you know the the weird intensity of the the conflict that they're working through in the background of him you know having his chocolate origin story i i just it really picked me up in those numbers a lot when they were it it was all just kind of working out a little bit even when it was in the sadder songs i felt like well nothing really bad can happen now we're in we're in a song even even this sad cheer up charlie style there's even a couple of those in this one i feel like the cheer up charlies but i i still liked them a lot i think in order to really get into the specifics of what we're talking about we're going to have to call spoilers sooner than later and i think you and i have expressed our opinions on where this movie falls for us if you've not seen it go see it Mm -hmm. I really think it's a wonderful holiday time and our hesitations with the film are in no way a real indictment of it as much as they are comparing it to something that is an impossible metric, whether that be the original Willy Wonka from the 70s or the Paddington films, which Mm -hmm. Paul King, who directed the Paddingtons, who also directed this movie. So I think we need to go into spoilers to really get into the nitty gritty of it but if you have any hesitation i really do think you should go see it it's a delightful time 
despite some of my reservations with it, which I will get into in spoilers. The spoilers threshold has been lifted on the episode. Let's let's do it. Is there anywhere specific that you want to start, Seamus? Willy Wonka with? can't read is an interesting thing, <sighs> I think. I don't hate that element of the story. I am frustrated that it doesn't really pay off a resolve yeah. in a particularly satisfying way, because... We haven't even really gotten into the plot of the film, which is that in the midst of Wonka attempting to begin his chocolate empire, he is indentured to Olivia Coleman and <laughs> T-Bone from Paddington 2. Yeah, baby! Scru and scrubble, scrubbum, and... Scrubbits and bleachers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, dude. They're fantastic and horrifying. I agree. I mean, Olivia Coleman, what a weird role for her. Yeah, dude. But I'm happy to see her here. She's also going to be in Paddington 3, not directed by Paul King, I should add. Of course, of course. But I enjoyed seeing her here. I enjoyed seeing her act off of such, like, a funny, over-the-top environment, which I, I haven't seen her do in a while. I mean, obviously her roots are in comedy back in her peep show days and stuff like that. But while Wonka is indentured, he befriends a colorful little cast of characters whose names match their professions. The accountant is named Crunch. The telephone operator is named Bell. The plumber is named Benz. And of course, the comedian is named Chucklesworth. Uh, Rich Fulcher, my boy, as Chucklesworth. I was so happy to see him in there because he really is funny even though his whole thing is that he's a failed comedian who's been yeah <laughs> who's been driving these indentured servant friends crazy for however long but i do love that when he finally gets liberated which is way at the end of the movie bleacher is like you've really got something special you oh, need to keep dude, at it that moment That's so funny <laughs> this whole movie really had a lot of great humor along with the Child abandonment, attempted murder, slavery, uh, corporate espionage, uh, corrupt police murder stuff that's going on. And speaking of children, the only child in the indentured servitude of these sociopathic cleaners is Noodle, whose name, in a way, is also representative of their role in the dynamic because she is as... The chief of police, played by Keegan Michael Key, says the brains of the operation. Oh yeah, that's very smart. I didn't, I didn't put that together. God, I'm, I am dumb. Damn, I can't believe it. That's on Mike. <laughs> I just, I just found out. Where was I going with Noodle? I was going. I brought this whole thing. I was indentured because. Oh, Willy Wonka can't read. Yes, yes. He signs the big, goofy, extra long contract that he's like, yep, totally, totally good, up to snuff. Which is reminiscent, of course, one of many references and allusions to the original 1971 film. So over the course of the movie, his child friend Noodle is teaching him to read. And sure, the payoff is good in that he eventually reads Noodle's birth mother's name, which then allows her to be reunited with her. But it doesn't feel like a big enough payoff for something that is given so much screen time. And also, a little bit, and I don't want to be the guy who thinks that every element of Wonka's origin needs to be spelled out, if you'll forgive the expression, in a prequel, but if Wonka isn't learning his 
manufacturing prowess from books, then where is he learning them? Like, I think that that's something that is a little bit weirdly left out in the open, especially because they do address the fact that, oh, well, when I was your age, I wanted to be a magician. I would do magic tricks for my mom, and my mom would make me chocolate, and that's where I learned to make chocolate, and that's where, I, where my affinity for it came from. But when you break it down to how does he know how to harness the wonders of engineering in <laughs> a factory the size of his suitcase, that is left woefully unaddressed, which I don't mind so much because sometimes characters can just be magical and mysterious, except the fact that he can't read is not given enough of a purpose in the plot to me to excuse causing that wrinkle in his origin. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it the, the payoff where he can finally read at the end is really played as more of a... Just like a simple, a very, a quite simple joke, and then I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, sure." They, there it goes. We we put a period on the end of that sentence, but it 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 didn't really do much for me. I liked the idea when it was introduced, and like how you know this flawed young man is gonna then one day become such a genius chocolate mogul. But yeah, I don't know. In in the end, I I feel. I mean, it was more to me. It seemed like it was more about hinting, like, oh, her, and her mom's a librarian, so it's like about you know reading and and knowing letters and stuff or whatever. I don't know. She she is a a slugworth though, but only I mean like barely a slugworth. She's basically a slugworth, so we can get her origin story more than she is a slugworth by any meaningful measure because. Her father died before she was born, who was Slugworth's brother. Yes. And it's her mother with whom she is reunited, her mother with who believes she is dead. And I've got to say that the actress, the young actress playing Noodle, whose name is Calla Lane, I am incredibly impressed by. I've never seen her in anything before. I think it's a breakout performance by any metric and she should be in more stuff she's a great singer she emotes wonderfully she was born in 2009 which isn't possible that's not true that's not true that's impossible <laughs> that's insane because she is an insane talent i totally agree so i enjoy her journey over the course of the film and i wish that wonka had been more meaningfully tied to it one of the high points of the film is for a moment, which is the musical number that they share at the zoo as they're milking a giraffe that then evolves into them dancing on rooftops with bouquets of balloons. And what a moment. If uh, Once again, forgiving the expression. I, there's going to be a lot of that this episode, I think. Of <laughs> it us. works, though. It's almost like it's intentionally channeling expressions of wonder into the everyday vocabulary of the film. But... I thought that was so charming. Maybe the most charming moment of the entire film and a high point of not only the musical numbers, but of their story together that, again, I wish it had been paid off a little bit better because they do go on the entire journey together. Yeah, start to finish. She's she's the one who kind of like tips off, tips them off like, hey, you got to read it, read the contract before you sign it. And then, you know, that truly does kind of start right where they end up evolving through the whole I'm going to teach you how to read I'm going to you know all all the all the things we were just talking about and those elements do feel a little bit rote I think that certainly the screenplay is not as tight as a Paddington screenplay for no. example which I think is an entirely fair comparison when you have literally the exact same writers 
and then the director executing as the Paddington films. I think that's a fair comparison, even though it is a different concept, but it's clearly going for a similar tone. And, you know, you think about the Browns having each of their own little payoffs and then all of the larger, like literally there is no wasted space in a Paddington script. There is nothing that does not pay off in a meaningful, exciting way. And in this movie, that's just not true. Yeah, the, there's the stuff with Noodle that we were just talking about. We alluded to the Keegan-Michael Key problem of it all that seems like it would yeah, be a character. Yeah, let's talk that about would... that, maybe. I think, yes, it was it was a, a wasted idea for a character, I feel like. Pretty much all of the funniest stuff that he does... He's in the trailer for this movie that we all saw a thousand times when this was coming out. So hook 'em, boys. Yeah, exactly. Exa- the the bonk on the head. You know, you're gonna get something worse than a bonk on the head. And then, yeah, then it, the rest of his time after the sweet tooth number, which I loved so much, it was so silly. Then it just turns into he is fat in a big old fat suit, eating lots and lots of chocolate, and. I will say it comes back around for me a little bit when he gets even more fat by the end of the movie. <laughs> I think if they kept him in the middle ground, I'd be like, all right, whatever. But they, they double down on the gloop of it all, the Augustus gloop. And I think that that brought it back for me a little bit. I still missed his early in the movie, like kind of a corrupt hard ass, like break, breaking up the riots of the, the, the chocolate gatherings. I, I missed it. Well, that's the thing that's difficult for me is... Keegan-Michael Key is a brilliant comedic actor, and I don't feel like I've ever seen that fully harnessed in a feature film. And during the first 45 minutes of this movie, I was thinking to myself, wow, they've really found a way to showcase his talents for character and broad comedy in this kind of role, that he's this corrupt police chief that doesn't know how to be corrupt i think that's a really funny (laughs) recurring bit he's doing this bizarre new york accent even though we're in the nebulous european-esque world that the 1971 (laughs) film takes place in but it's there's no concrete country that this film takes place in but it's certainly not new york city yeah it it like is new york city but also london and paris at the same time it's like everybody has a different accent and dresses in a different like period fashion accent it's very it's very fun just like the first one yeah it's london and paris and munich and uh, i mean oxford obviously yeah shot a lot of the film it's crazy all of the different elements that are thrown in there and Going back to Keegan-Michael Key, once it devolves into, you know, he's just paid in chocolate and he keeps getting bigger and bigger, then it's only fat jokes from that point on. And I think that's just such a waste of his talents and of what I found to be a really entertaining character. Yeah, I if, since we since we watched it, I have been like, I've, I've been workshopping my own punch-up idea, like how that could have been executed in a way that I, I would have enjoyed more. And it always, to me, it always comes back to they set up this other thing with the three chocolate lords of the city. The chocolate cartel? The chocolate cartel, thank you very much. They're, like, diluting their chocolate in a way that's, like, they're making money and their chocolate is worse. If there was something about how, like, Keegan-Michael Key is getting sick from their diluted chocolate, but he can't help himself from getting more chocolate, or he's, like, developing a chocolate allergy because they're messing with the formulas... Something in a way where it doesn't just suddenly he is a different character with one physical trait that we're just going to have on screen as the joke. 
I also think there's an element of they establish that the chocolate cartel is diluting their chocolate and a repeated line that is prominently featured in multiple musical numbers is you've never had chocolate like this. And I kept thinking, well, wouldn't Keegan-Michael Key maybe want to switch over to like the good Wonka chocolate? Couldn't that be a plot element of some kind? And overall, I also have a problem with, in addition to the fat jokes, the idea that treating chocolate like drugs in this movie kind of stamps on the purity of chocolate as a wondrous childlike experience in the 71 version which wouldn't be so much of a problem if the movie weren't directly comparing itself to the 71 version in many elements you know it's not it's not uh you know the marvelous misadventures of flapjack you know where they're like literally getting drunk uh, at the candy bar or whatever and I, I can see what you're saying for sure, and I, I feel like I had to just kind of reel myself back in when it started kind of alluding to, like, you know, cartel, drugs, this kind of bribery that was going on, and I, I kind of fell back in my own mind on, like, it's it's more like money. Like, money is money in this world, obviously, but apparently chocolate is also money. They keep it in vaults. Well, they're paying other people off with it. It's Would you like your change spendable or edible is... A line in the movie. They could either get their change back in <laughs> cash exactly. or in chocolate. Would you not get your change back in chocolate every time? Would that not be Absolutely. like... Like, that's crazy. I want... Oh, where's Wonka Land? Is that a thing? Who who can make that I think that there a was a Wonka theme park at one point in another country that has since been shut down. People that's not this like, week's pop culture reference, but it very well could be, I suppose. I would get... I would love to get sick at a Wonka land with you sometime. <laughs> I would love to gloop it up, get sucked into the, the chocolate pipe. Well, we were in our own little Wonka land when we went to go see this movie, and we had stuck in our Cadbury <laughs> yes. chocolate bars and our lint truffles. That was pretty. That was Dude, pretty that great. Was, I will say, pretty banging. I will say, eating eating a bunch of decadent chocolate to that this movie was a treat for sure. The chocolate designs, the candy designs, are lovely. I want to eat everything on screen. Truly, I heard Timothy Chalamet was legitimately getting like consistently sick because he had to eat so much chocolate for this movie. Paul King has also said that he gained like 50 pounds <laughs> on this movie, which I totally believe because everything looks scrum diddly Shameless, dude. Truly. Oh man. Wait, I also had a different thought to talk, talk about scrum diddly bar and, and Slugworth bars and stuff. There, there is still some kind of future where Slugworth candy is like a direct competitor to Wonka. Yeah. So this little girl, the last heir of the Slugworth line, is going to one day come up into the chocolate world and rival her old best friend at some point. Oh, you don't think he just gets out of prison and continues his chocolate venture? No, what? No, absolutely not. That guy's in prison forever. He's in pink jail clothes eating marmalade sandwiches till the day he dies. <laughs> We do have, you brought up Paddington, and so now you've really put the quarter in me, Seamus, <laughs> even though I was going to transition to a different point, but now here we are. Here we are. You do have Kobna Holbrook-Smith, who is the non-corrupt policeman in this film, which if it were any more politically charged, I might have something extra to say about how the <laughs> fact that they're like, oh, we'll, we'll combat the corrupt police force with the good cops. This is the good cops. They're going to arrest the good, you know. Fantasy, Garrett. Fantasy world. It's fine. It's Wonka. I'm fine. It's okay. 
but he, of course, is the warden of the prison in Paddington 2, and then he also plays a major role in Mary Poppins Returns, which I do think this movie maybe does owe something oh, to. Oh, sure. It's kind of an Ouroboros where that is a movie that was definitely inspired by the Paddington movies and then now has in turn inspired Wonka, which I think is great because I like Mary Poppins Returns. I was going to say, this little this little spire of inspirations and, and spinoffs and, and trading directors and writers and producers around, I'm kind of loving it. I, I'm not disappointed with any of the movies we just mentioned. No, neither am I. And I think Mary Poppins Returns has better music than this movie does i don't think it has better musical numbers and that is like a really important distinction when you're talking mm-hmm. about a musical i think and the thing i was going to bring up before we ventured into paddington land is the chief of police the chief of police how polices the chief of police's police. ballooning over the course of the film, can be defended by saying it is something that is very reminiscent of something that would happen in a Roald Dahl film. You've mentioned Gloop multiple times. I will also mention that when they start to get drowned in the chocolate, in the chocolate vault in the third act of this movie, (laughs) you and I turned to each other in unison and said... They're getting glooped, which I think is hysterical. Oh, oh, dude. They knew what they were doing. Come on. But the parallel thought of using gloop as a verb, I think, is very funny. (laughs) Um, I mean, if anyone ever drowned in liquid chocolate in real life, (laughs) is that not the instant, like, headline in the the worst papers? Uh, They got glooped. Yeah, that's true. That's fair, Seamus. I'll give you that. But I think there are a lot of elements that are very successfully lifted from other Roald Dahl works and this kind of Dickensian poverty that Wonka and his other compatriots are in towards the beginning of the film. While it's an element in something like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I feel like is also directly lifted mm. from a lot of other Roald Dahl works. And I think that was a really smart way to build out the world of Wonka is to pull in, you know, what feels like Willy Wonka, other Roald Dahl things. And while it wasn't necessarily my favorite part of the movie, I can applaud their ingenuity in building out the world and keeping a consistent tone with the original without introducing a bunch of new lore and stuff that I don't have to overthink. Yeah, that is that is kind of my favorite thing about this. Is Like I said before, it's not trying to stitch every single thing perfectly to the the predecessor but it's it's really just keeping a consistent fun tone that i can just enjoy on its own and then also be like appreciative of how truly simple they keep hugh grant's oompa loompa backstory even though he his vindictive thieving oompa loompa role is one of my favorite parts of it all yeah we haven't mentioned him literally at in all. all of the paddington talk we weren't like oh yeah and also hugh grant is here and he is like a foot tall and he's one of the best parts of the movie i'm glad that he doesn't overstay his welcome i've seen a lot of criticism that's like i needed more oompa loompa in it and while i agree that the idea of the kind of ethical processing consumption sourcing that the idea of wonka stealing from loompa land i mean that could definitely use a little bit more development and i feel like they're leaving some of it open for a potential sequel which we will Mm -hmm. get into later down the road here i'm glad that he's used as sparingly as he is and that for most of the film he exists as an adversarial presence because i was really ready to be graded by the Oompa Loompa and 
he he was not grating to me. I thought he was really funny. I like that he's like a weird James Bond character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like mixing lo- himself cocktails. He's got a he's got a recliner in a little suitcase. He's got his grapple hook that he's using to get into Wonka's chambers and <laughs> his like wingsuit, his Batman glider wings. And ultimately, I also like that this is going to be weird to say. Hugh Grant's face stamped on that tiny. <laughs> (laughs) tiny tiny little body is so uncanny and kind of unnerving that it works for me it feels like in the spirit it's in the spirit of the original 70s one where i'm like this is just strange and i'm not (laughs) sure i like it and i said to you during the movie i don't know how this effect is going to age but it's working for me right now i i think exactly like what you're saying it's almost supposed to look a little more bizarre than something else that's a little more seamless in the cgi i think i think it's a really good job and knowing that hugh grant actually really disliked the whole process is really funny (laughs) because he's so good in this movie it's knowing that he'll like he's gonna be offered another role one day with with mocap involved and he's gonna turn it down instantly that's this is our one chance and he really nailed it i'm glad that he does such a good role in this especially i mean him and paddington 2 that is the thing that pushes paddington 2 over paddington 1 in a lot of ways i think is how good hugh grant is as the villain and i liked him popping back up in this in such a fun weird role i liked the dynamics between him and wonka the idea that wonka seems crazy when he's talking about the little <laughs> man because while this world is magical it's not that magical and everybody else thinks he's crazy until they see evidence of an actual oompa loompa yeah it's it's not like world breaking news that willy wonka has invented like sustainable levitation technology but like he sees a a little (laughs) orange man and people are like this guy's nuts he's insane not to mention and i want to go back a little bit to the lumba land subplot where i do really feel like it's half a subplot and i wish it were expanded upon further but i am glad that i you and i said last week that we wanted this movie to be wonka going around the world discovering Mm. his flavors and all of his technologies and He's on he's on the ship at the beginning, and they're like, this is the end of that journey. This is the end of Wonka going around the world, discovering uh, everything that he discovers. And he's he's a cook on the ship, which I think is a really fun little note of, like, how can you be poor and also have traveled all around the world? Well, he cooked his way around the world. And I like the bandit outlaw chocolatier Wonka that we get in this <laughs> yeah. movie. And we, I was excited to see the flashback to him adventuring in Lupa Land. But I wanted a little bit more of it. Again, half a subplot where they're kind of trying to talk about colonialism. They're kind of trying to talk about ethical trade, ethical sourcing. And they get really close to completely realizing that subplot. But I, I, yeah, I could have used a little bit more, not necessarily with the Oompa Loompa, but I don't know. I think it just could have been more fully realized. No, I, I totally, I totally get where you're coming from. They, they used that really brief flashback to, to more set up a personal kind of thing with Hugh Grant's Oompa Loompa character. And that where that is really where my mind went when we were talking like, oh, they did kind of leave it open enough that if they wanted to fill more of the gap between what is supposed to be like Willy Wonka giving away his factory and like how he really gets to that point. That backstory is the funny way for the movie to show us that Hugh Grant is... That it's his fault because he was asleep 
all that to say, I think they could have leaned into the aspect of like the Loompa land colonialist angle, the thievery of very important, obviously very traditionally important things. But then there's that sequel potential, like I was saying before. The the other Oompa Loompas come in and they blow up Hugh Grant's spot. And they're like, what do you mean Hugh Grant's been telling you that this is, like, what we asked him to do all these years? Like, he's been... He is on the bad boy list. He let this happen. Do you think Willy Wonka would have taken those beans if Hugh Grant was awake and said, hey, you can't take these beans? No, absolutely not. Exactly. So, I mean, like, the 70s one might have, but the Chalamet more palatable... Because he is sinister, but he's not that sinister. And then the... I. Am I crazy? Am I making this up that in the Johnny Depp one, he's just, like, eating slime in the jungle? Is he eating slime in he that jungle? He cuts, like, a dragonfly in half and then licks his oh, yes. machete. Oh, God. What a what a bad memory. What a bad, what a bad <laughs> That's shot. Literally, that is maybe one of my... That, I think that exact beat is probably the high point of that entire movie <laughs> for me. So so gross. It's just, like, I always remember that as, like, it's the Valley of Bugs from Peter jackson's king kong except johnny depp is licking the slime and that's not fun what did you what did you think of pure imagination at the end i thought it was genuinely very sweet i i thought it was a great final like big sweeping willy wonka moment that goes in with noodle reuniting with her mother at the end there i i thought it was very well done and i'm glad that it you know it was what maybe one of the only real callback holdouts from like this the musical part of the soundtrack of the original because obviously you have the the oompa loompa song which yes, i mean yes. that seems like, like a no-brainer but i leaned over to you during the movie and i said same song different lyrics yes. seems like the perfect metaphor for this movie i i've been and thinking about you saying that actually i didn't want to steal your thunder with that one <laughs> i appreciate that I, I i mean i stand by that i think it really is true that it's taking the feeling of Willy Wonka and the iconography of Willy Wonka, but adding its own spin and adding its own voice to it. It's modernizing it, even though ironically it's going further back in time than the original Willy Wonka was. And I'm very glad that it all kind of works together. Uh, and you, you spoke of how sparingly they use the callbacks and the moment where we've we've not talked about Sally Hawkins at all, which is a crime. Because that is crazy. Yeah, she she. Uh, she fits right in with everything else, though. It's so natural for us to just think about it. Another thing I said to you during the movie is Paul King is in love with Sally Hawkins, and I think that's probably true. <laughs> uh, aren't we all, though? She's such a we, sweet... I, uh, I cannot blame him. Absolutely, um, absolutely not. But the moment where Wonka unwraps her last chocolate bar, and it has the golden ticket that says it's not the chocolate it's who you share it with oh beautiful absolutely beautiful that's so, such a sweet time and that makes me want more of wonka and friends you know there it was such a fun cast of characters all together it really feels because he's such a sad lonely man in the original you know it's i i don't like to think that he is such a recluse at you know and later point in his life when he had such a real family that he he was you know, and he loved those people. I, I I would think that he would never leave Chucklesworth, you know? They, they were best friends. <laughs> and that's what I like about this film. It doesn't feel like it undermines that element. It makes it more tragic. It it, says, exactly. It, it breaks my heart for real. Yeah, like you think about, oh, Wonka, what happened, man? What? Where and did they go? Uh, that's kind of what I went into this movie 
anticipating it's like it's gonna be such a lovely movie and then there's gonna be a twist of the knife right at the end was my anticipation and i'm glad they didn't they didn't destroy me that much after they made me really love this big group but there's something is something happens to him you know the the slugworth name does not leave the the lore of willy wonka after they arrest this man i was gonna say maybe that's the secret maybe at the end because he shuts down the factory and brings in the Oompa-Loompas because somebody steals from him. Maybe somebody leaks his secrets to Slugworth. Maybe somebody that has a familial connection to Slugworth. And that betrayal is what ultimately turns him against everybody until Charlie comes back into his life and reminds him what love and family and chocolate are really about. Oh, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I really loved this movie. I I don't know if I'm prepared for the Roald Dahl verse that they kind of dropped <laughs> no, on us at the beginning. No, you and I there. both rolled our eyes like, when that title happening? popped up. Unless James flies his giant peach and lands in Willy Wonka's city somewhere and is like, <laughs> oh, Willy Wonka walks out clapping. You know, little Hugh Grant walks out clapping and goes, I've got a job I need to offer you. That would be the ultimate hilarious. <laughs> Hugh Grant is stuck in the Nick Fury role in the role Dolver's doing the mocap that he hates. <laughs> that's such a funny idea. God, that's so dumb. But that they're gonna do it, and I'll watch it, damn it. Okay, one last thing that I want to mention about something I didn't like about this movie, even though I've been overwhelmingly positive about it. Oh, lay it on me. I do not care for the fact that they inherit that, well, they buy with all of their chocolate money, their outlaw chocolate money. Oh, the, the store? storefront. And then overnight is just magically gone from dilapidated to the perfect magical store. I, I could have used a montage in there. I won't lie. Yeah, because... you know what? I agree, actually. I was like, what do you mean? It's magical stuff. But I would have loved to have seen more of the transformation. You know, they, they just suddenly have uniforms and they yeah. know how to work retail suddenly. I guess most of them are adults. I'm thinking more but about the child. Something like Paddington where, oh, you know, yeah, I, won't, yeah. I won't bring up any specific examples for folks who haven't seen them, but where things feel a little more quickly resolved. You could attribute that to the fact that most of the time there are not concrete impediments in Paddington to those developments. Like the, the conflict in Paddington is usually will Paddington be accepted by X community that he's mm-hmm. been thrust into. And once that acceptance occurs, then the magic blossoming of that environment can happen. And here, money is such a concrete obstacle to the character's desire that even though they do do a good job establishing like okay Wonka has made all this money from his outlaw chocolatiering that he has the money to open the store the extension of that like okay we use that to accomplish one thing I needed more justification to accomplish the second thing right I needed them to at least work hard if not Uh figure out an additional means of payment for the revamping of the storefront because it is I mean that's one of the great musical numbers of the film uh, a world of your own i think that's the musical number that probably they're banking on becoming the iconic one from this movie because they also played over the closing credits so i feel like that's the one that, like hey see this is the big this is the big original number from this I, one which i think is pretty I charming really, i really do like that one too that whole number where he's walking up the steps right at the beginning with the skeptical old man i i really i really liked it so i mean that's just an i i wouldn't say it's a nitpick it's more than a nitpick but it is something that did bother me a little bit 
and I wish would have been addressed a little bit more. That's probably my biggest, like, plot contrivance issue that I have, because otherwise, the tone and the charm cover most of my issues with this film. The opening credits say it's a Paul King confection, and I couldn't do more. <laughs> I would like to see this movie again with double the amount of chocolate that we brought in. I need to be <laughs> pigging out. so much chocolate. Oh, double it, triple it, scratch uh. that, reverse it, all of that. I, I, I really liked it. It looks lovely. The music is fantastic. I, I'm a fan. Again, I've been proven wrong so many times this year by trailers that I thought really looked lackluster or made the movie look like it was a completely different kind of movie, but I may be the happiest of all that Wonka really, really got me. Well, I'm glad that you and I have gone on this Paddington journey together and then also sought this one out. Both of us were skeptics going in and both of us were ultimately won over by the musical stylings of one Timmy Chalamet. When Wonka Land opens at Universal Studios and the Oompa Loompa side uh, character spin-off movie comes out, <laughs> you and I will probably be eating our words. But for now, I'm glad this is doing well. I'm glad that it was good. It's no Paddington, but... I'll see it again, probably, and I've You're already seen it twice. Through the, well, I gotta catch up, to say the least. But with that, what do you say we kick it on over to our reference this week? I can't imagine a bigger tonal shift, but let's go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> let's do it. For today's pop culture reference, we're gonna be talking about roguelike video games. Roguelike games are commonly linked by gameplay elements like permadeath, randomly generated environments, and item management. Following in the footsteps of what is widely considered the father of all roguelike games, the 1980 text-based adventure game Rogue. In 2008, the Berlin interpretation became widely accepted after players and developers in the International Roguelike Development Conference defined how roguelike a game is with nine high-value and five low-value factors based on five definitive roguelikes. Adam, Angband, Lindley's Dungeon Crawl, NetHack, and of course, Rogue. The advent of the Rogue Light in modern gaming does away with the more strict rules of the Berlin interpretation and blends them with more forgiving elements of other gaming genres. Our spotlight on the God of War Ragnarok Valhalla DLC in today's news segment is just the latest in modern AAA titles using this gameplay model as a way to extend single-player experiences without the addition of a multiplayer function with the recently announced Last of Us Part Two remaster's No Return Mode premiering in January as well. It's funny to bring that up in relation to the fact that the Last of Us multiplayer function is no longer happening. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that's kind of, I, I wanted to definitely touch on that a little bit. I, there's a little bit of a shift. There's so much development that goes into a, a multiplayer experience and, and, there seems to be a bit of a renaissance on single-player, narrative-driven video games right now. So, I I really don't hate the Switch, if I'm being honest. I Sometimes multiplayer stuff gets pretty stale. I will say I was looking forward to The Last of Us's factions mode making a return, but... You've mentioned it dozens of times on this podcast, Jameis. I truly was pretty disappointed when they announced that that was going under, but... I, after my brief experiences with God of War, Ragnarok, Valhalla, wow, that's a lot of words in one thing. Uh, I I don't hate the idea at all of kind of shifting more towards a 
infinitely playable, always surprising kind of format that, you know, it, it literally will never get old. There's no way to get the same thing twice. And, I mean, the first God of War 20, or not the first God of War, goodness. God of War 4, God of War 2018, please don't come for me, gamers. <laughs> you're, you're, I would be the one to come for you with that one. Was also kind of innovative in this capacity where there was a realm that you could travel to that was essentially its own roguelike game for you to go yes, absolutely. And I have enjoyed, you know, I was always skeptical of the roguelike genre, but I've enjoyed several roguelike games over the last few years. Like Returnal wasn't super my cup of tea. I did rec center it on the show because I do think it is an objectively good game that I did enjoy playing, mm. but I didn't finish it by any means. But uh, shared passions that you and I have had include something like Slay the Spire, which is less combat focused, but still ultimately a roguelike where it is. Well, it's turn-based combat, I guess. It's not oh, yeah, definitely turn-based, player combat focused. It's It's a card game. And I mean, of course, Inscription, we both also really fell into that one. I, I've really, I've come around on the, the roguelite more than anything. I still can't necessarily get too lost in the roguelike. I don't necessarily know if I could dedicate, like, I, I get too frustrated with a true roguelike, you know? It's very, I need some kind of progress, and that's where something like Slay the Spire or Inscription comes in, where it's like, it is still you know, procedurally generated a lot of the time in many elements and it's turn-based very, very stepping stone. But eventually you do get to the stepping stone of like adding a card to your deck or unlocking, uh, you know, an extra bonus that you start off a run with. And then, then that feels at least a little more solid. It's not so ethereal to be like, well, there's literally nothing you can do except for play better than you did the last time. That That drives me crazy for real. Yeah, I could totally agree with that. And as somebody who I've often referred to myself, at least in your company, as like the average gamer, I feel like I'm the target demographic <laughs> for a lot of console uh, developers that I buy a few games a year. I play what's on PS Plus. I am not amazing at video games, but I'm probably a little bit better than average at video games. Mm. And I don't want to spend 60 hours getting good enough at something to actually progress in it. I want to play something that I can genuinely enjoy. And when the gameplay evolves is when I am able to get better at it and develop my skill. And something like Slay the Spire and Inscription are definitely the sweet spot for me. Well, I'm definitely, I'm going to be very interested to hear your rogue thoughts about this God of War DLC when you do finally sink your teeth into it, because it's, it, it really throws a lot of twists and turns into the roguelike format that I think you'll really enjoy. So I, that will probably bring that back up on the show whenever you do get there. Sometime we'll cover Ragnarok. That'll yeah, be good for when us. When the show comes out. You remember they're doing that still, I think? <laughs> when that comes <laughs> no, out. No, they're we'll, not. That's Aren't they? That got canceled years ago, maybe? This, no, this it's still happening. We, no, I was going to say, happening. this is where we spread fake news about things we don't want to be coming out. So I think with that, it's time to wrap it up and save the rec center. What do you say? Let's save it and save it and then die again and then save it. Oh, God. God. Let's, oh, let's do it. Save the rec center! Now it's time to save the rec center where we bring you our weekly rec amendations. That wasn't even that long, Seamus. No, I don't know why you're laughing. That was long, man. Come on. <laughs> that, was, that was long enough to get me to laugh. Well, I, that's always the goal, I suppose. <laughs>
But what do you have to rec center for us this week? I've been trying to get into the holiday spirit. This is probably going to be our last episode of the year. Is that accurate enough? That say? is, it's on the table. I wouldn't officially <laughs> say that, but it's, it's likely. Potentially, but to, I've been really trying to get into the Christmas spirit. I've been listening to a lot of Christmas music. I've been I've been trying to, to watch Christmas movies where I can. And today I revisited a Garrett Strother and pop culture reference favorite classic Rankin and Bass 1970 Santa Claus is coming to town. <sighs> We're talking origin stories, musical origin stories today, and it, it's the it's the best one. I know I I said that a hundred billion years ago in a Rankin and Bass Christmas special special, whenever that was in the timeline. It's amazing. The music is great. One foot in front of the other. You can't get it out of your head. Toymaker to the King. Get out of here with how good that song is. Come on, Un- unnecessarily good music. Really fun. Burgermeister Meister Burger is the villain of all time. I I you already know Absolutely. how good this is, Garrett, but if if you're just if you're just on the wrong side of the Christmas spirit, throw that on fifty minutes flat, you'll you'll be right where I am right now. Highly recommended. It's been my favorite forever. I think sometime I was thinking about this today actually, that a rank and a bass marathon is definitely not out of the question for us. And oh. I mean, that would be be a mini marathon, probably. What is that? Probably going to be like twelve hours. Who gives a crap about that? That's yeah, easy. That's not nothing. Even twelve hours. I feel like that would be that would be nothing. That would be easy mode, you know. But yeah, I love Santa Claus is coming to town. It's been my favorite since I was a little little boy, and it's endlessly charming. It has such a tight story. Santa Claus fights the Nazis. I don't know what more you want. <laughs> I'm probably going to watch it right after we get off of this, and I haven't watched it yet this year, so that, that's a rec center just to remind me how good I have it, Seamus. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, it is all you need. Get a little cocoa, pop that bad boy on, and n- nothing to it. But what do you have to save the rec center today? Well, we are Christmassy boys, Seamus, of course. So I watched last night for the first time in a long time the full-length version of Muppet Christmas Carol, which has Uh. the famously removed ballad when love is gone reinstated it is streaming for the first time in high definition on disney plus uh it was put on last year and when you go to the muppet christmas carol section on disney plus you go over to the extras and you select the full length version it adds just a few minutes to the total runtime but it is well worth doing because it adds an emotional depth that i think i mean the muppet christmas Carol, even the cut version, is still probably objectively the best Muppet movie, period. It's maybe the best adaptation of A Christmas Carol, but when you add in that low point uh, in the story, if you know where it is, you know, and if you don't, you don't. <laughs> I, it is. Famously, I don't. I've never seen either of the Muppet Christmas I, specials. I know you haven't. I, it's I, a shame. This is also a rec center specifically to remind me to get my head out of my ass and watch really good Christmas content. It's so good, Seamus. And, like, you're a Muppet boy. You're oh, yeah. a Christmas boy. Exactly. There, it's, it has everything that I would like anyway. I don't know why I've never seen it. I think that you should definitely get on it, and it's well worth your time because it's magical all of the muppets are great michael kane is turning in one of his best performances ever which is crazy to say but it's true i think he deserves an oscar for 
Muppet Wow, wow. Well, I think, you know, I've got plenty of time with the family to convince them to watch the version of this movie with the sad part in it. And I'll be like, no, no, I want to I wanna be part of the group that knows, so we have to watch this version with the sad couple extra minutes. I, it'll confuse them at first, but I think if what I'm picking up from this rec center is true, I think it's it's more than worth it. I completely mean it when I say it, Seamus, and I'll be excited to hear back from you. <laughs> Hell yeah. I will. Oh yeah, you'll be the first to know. I'll be live texting you what my reactions are for sure. But that wraps us up for the show this week. If you want to hit us up on social media, that's at PCR underscore podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also find us on Facebook. And if you want to message us directly, you can hit us up by emailing popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Next week, I think I'm going to say it. I'm going to say the words that you don't want to hear. <laughs> Next week, whether that is in the new year or not, I think we'll be covering the original James Wan Aquaman. for the show (laughs) a movie i have never seen but i am a james wan diehard through and through and we'll see if this movie will break me of that well i'll uh, you know what it's far from the worst snyderverse movie so it's got that going for it but god help us we'll get there next week for sure Uh, it'll be very interesting I'm excited to talk more about that next week or next couple weeks, depending on how this this release schedule works out. Everybody have a happy holidays. Obviously, we recorded this before Christmas. If it comes out after Christmas, I have faith that it will come out before Christmas, but you never know. You never know. Feliz Navidad, amigos.